Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. I'm so glad to see so many people in the room, and welcome to all the folks who are joining us uh, online through the uh, virtual access. Um, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today about how to integrate perioperative immunotherapy into multimodal treatment plans to improve outcomes for resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Um, it's a real honor for me to share the stage here with uh, someone who I consider to be a mentor and really sort of the epitome of what a thoracic surgeon ought to be, Dr. Al Torki from Royal Cornell uh, Medicine. I'm joining you here uh, in person today, happy to be here from uh, traveling down from Montreal, Canada. I practice at uh, the McGill University Health Center. So why are we here today? Um, I think there's a lot of gaps in care for the patients we look after with stage one to three non-small lung cell lung cancer. And uh, obviously with gaps, we have great opportunities for improvement. Um, there's been a lot of activity in this area. It's kind of hard to keep up, especially um, when a lot of the stuff is presented at medical oncology conferences and maybe not being brought directly to you, the surgeons who bear most of the risk with your patients of all of this activity because uh, it does affect our patients uh, in a very significant way. Um, so we'll be trying to explore some of the latest advances in neoadjuvant immunotherapy. That'll be uh, my uh, section. And then uh, Dr. Al Torki will talk to us about uh, recent progress in adjuvant immunotherapy. And then we'll try and go through a couple cases just to sort of illustrate some, some of the many issues that we uh, encounter, and then we'll do a Q&A. All right, so what about neoadjuvant immunotherapy for resectable non-small cell lung cancer? I just want to put this case, which happens to be a patient that I've treated in the last few years, um, for consideration. She's a 67-year-old uh, female. She has COPD, and she shows up to my office as an active smoker uh, trying to quit. Um, she has reasonable lung function with an FEV1 of 70%, a DLCO of 65%. She underwent a TTNA that was uh, positive for adenocarcinoma. The PDL1 was 70%. Uh, we uh, were doing reflex NGS on these, and it was negative for any actionable mutations. She underwent an EBUS, and you can see on the uh, right of the screen a sort of a sizable uh, level 7 lymph node, which was positive for adenocarcinoma. The rest of the staging EBUS was negative, so it's really a clinical T1B N2 single-station non-bulky uh, tumor. There's a little a GGO there that's negative on PET, um, so we just kind of took that into account uh, and committed it to memory for when she would go to the OR. Patient wants surgery. And so I want you to think about how you would manage this patient. We'll come back to it for the, um, for the cases at the end. So there are some arguments to choosing neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy. Um, the thought that the tumor is in place, the uh, immune microenvironment is available for interaction, which is necessary to develop immune memory and uh, clonotype-specific uh, cytotoxic T cells. Um, and so the idea that the tumor may be acting as a vaccine is uh, theoretically uh, appealing. It's also been demonstrated in preclinical experiments. Um, and there's great value of these trials for discovery, uh, research, uh, and the interpretation of the pathological response to tailor adjuvant treatment accordingly. It's also something that's become really part of the standard of care for numerous other disease sites. I think lung has been sort of slow to, uh, to adopt. Uh, but I suspect that will come with time. One of the big challenges we have now is interpreting the specimen after. It's not our challenge, it's our friends, uh, the pathologist's challenge. Uh, and there is a great paper here, which is a consensus statement that was put out a couple of years ago by the IASLC, 
Um, and it's not really meant to be specific to immunotherapy-treated patients. The whole purpose of this consensus was to develop a way of looking at the pathological specimens that could be interpreted regardless of the type of preoperative therapy given. And the two main endpoints that have been looked at are pathological complete response, meaning no residual viable tumor cells in the tumor bed or lymph nodes, and major pathological response, which is considered to be less than 10% viable tumor cells. Just from a historical standpoint, Pathological complete response rarely would occur in more than 5 to 7% max when you would look at uh, the older clinical trials. And for reasons of, of practicality, one could not design a trial based on an endpoint that occurs so rarely. So a major pathological response was re really developed as a way to, develop, to study neoadjuvant trials uh, with an event rate that was a little bit more frequent. And again, historically there, it would be with standard chemo, about 15% of patients would get a major pathological response. There are numerous trials in this space. These are just the phase three ongoing trials. Uh, just for context, it's important to remember that Checkmate 816 is the only one that was pure neoadjuvant, uh, whereas all the others that will be coming to you in the coming uh, couple years, I would think, um, are periadjuvant trials where patients received preoperative chemoimmunotherapy followed by adjuvant uh, immunotherapy. So I'll go into some of the details of Checkmate 816 because this is the main uh, data set that will inform our care for the coming uh, period of time. Uh, 816 was a, uh, is a phase three trial uh, originally designed to compare nivolumab and ipilimumab to platinum doublet, but as the data emerging from the Nadim trial uh, came through, this uh, trial was amended to compare nivolumab, platinum doublet, uh, to platinum doublet alone, followed by surgery. The eligibility criteria include patients with stage 1b to 3a by AJCC7. Just for context, again, that would correspond to patients with stage 2, 3a, and operable 3b's, the T3 and 2's, in the current 8th edition. Um, if patients had a known EGFR out mutation, which was required in, in the, for the uh, Asian jurisdictions, they were excluded. If it wasn't tested or not known, uh, they could still go on trial, which is possibly uh, the case for many of the European and North American patients. They had to be COG 0 to 1 and uh, have a primary lung tumor tissue available for uh, evaluation. There were two independent primary uh, endpoints. Uh, one was event-free survival, which is uh, patients not progressing to surgery or having any uh, evidence of recurrence or death of any, from any cause in the follow-up period. And the second independent primary endpoint was pathological complete CR. The trial was powered for overall survival, which, to, which was to be tested hierarchically if both independent primary endpoints were positive. If you look at the baseline characteristics, they are quite, um, I would say, representative of our usual operative, uh, operable lung cancer uh, patient population. Some uh, features of note are the uh, half of patients who came from Asia, uh, two-thirds of the patients who, came, who had stage 3, uh, lung cancer, uh, probably an overrepresentation of squamous cell carcinomas in, from what uh, might be in most North American usual practice. Um, but those are the only, I think, striking findings that might differ from, from your usual practice. In terms of the uh, treatment summary, I think what's very compelling is that 98% of the patients in both arms went on to the first uh, cycle of neoadjuvant treatment, and 94% completed all three cycles in the chemoimmunotherapy trial. That was numerically superior to the 85% who completed chemo. Uh, one of the concerns 
uh, is obviously non-progression for surgery that would be front of mind for the audience in front of me today with approximately 16 to 17% of patients not making it to surgery. Um, half of those were, for, were not because of um, things like disease progression. There were uh, patients declining surgery or uh, having an insufficient lung function to progress to surgery. Only 1% uh, did not go due to some adverse event relating to the preoperative treatment. And 7% had disease progression. One might argue if your disease is progressing on one of our most active regimens, maybe you shouldn't be operating on these people at all. But um, that's uh, obviously for discussion. Another interesting finding is uh, the reduction in the time or the duration of surgery. That's almost over half an hour. I don't have many tools in the OR that can enable me to operate that much faster. So it's a kind of a compelling finding in my mind. Um, the, so the um, first primary endpoint, which was reported at the American Association of Cancer Research last year by Dr. Ford, is the 14-fold increase in pathological complete response with nearly a quarter of the patients having no residual tumor, either in the primary tumor or the lymph node, uh, dissected lymph nodes. So that is a very significant finding. When we look at the forest plot, looking at the, um, this is really exploratory, uh, it's important to remember that this is a relatively small trial and these are small subgroups. So not to overinterpret them, but it is interesting that regardless of stage or histology, there seems to be benefit in terms of um, um, the pathological response rate as well as the PDL1 level with uh, even the less than 1%ers deriving some benefit from a PCR standpoint. I think the other interesting thing, which is important to place into context, if you go into the detail of the paper and look at the EFS by stage, is to see that regardless of uh, stage, patients had uh, high rates of PCR in the chemo-nevo group as compared to the chemo-alone group, which might lead one to believe that regardless of stage, there will eventually be a significant EFS benefit. Again, those groups are small in the 1Bs and 2s. One of the most impactful findings is that this whole treatment approach didn't really incur any uh, significant adverse events as compared to the so-called control group of chemotherapy with uh, no real uh, signals of toxicity. And what I find most impressive is that the grade 3-4 rate for the surgery-related adverse events was 11% versus 15% in the NEVO chemo group. I don't know what you guys quote for your patients, but when I see a patient for stage 1 lung cancer undergoing VATS-LOBE, I quote them a 10% major complication rate. And so these are much more advanced patients. I think this is a very interesting finding. Um, CTDNA clearance, this is maybe hope for the future that we may have better surrogate markers of response on the treatment trajectory of the patient. I think the main take-home, again, small subsets here, is that CTDNA clearance is sort of a required step to achieve a uh, pathological uh, complete response with no patients getting a path complete response who did not clear the CTDNA, but in those who did, um, those 46%. So an interesting blood-based marker of what's happening in the tissue. Surgical uh, outcomes, again, interesting. It's Most of the effect seems to be in the 3A patients who presumably have more bulk of disease and more challenging uh, lesions to resect. But we have uh, numerically more patients being able to complete the operation by minimally invasive approach. Um, half as many conversions. I want to remind you that this study was run in 150 centers around the world, some academic, some community, so it's really 
a representation of what the thoracic surgical community can do and, um, you know, may not be comparable to a lot of the prior data, phase two data, which was done in high-volume academic centers. Um, and again, in the 3A cohort, there seem to be fewer pneumonectomies. We all appreciate the risk of pneumonectomy uh, from a perspective of death from non-oncologic cardiopulmonary death. And so if we can reduce that, I think this is an impactful outcome. In terms of surgery-related complications, there was, again, no signal of uh, significant risk for the chemonevo-treated patients. The pain probably related to the fewer number of patients who needed open surgery in the uh, chemonevo-treated patients. It's not here, but if you look at 90-day mortality, uh, and, and you can just look at it in the, in the paper, it's 2.8%. Um, after this chemonivolumab. That's, again, pretty good if you look at STS uh, database. 90-day mortalities for lung resection, they're, they're quite a bit higher than that. Length of stay. So we have uh, 10 days in both cohorts, but we know that uh, how long you keep a patient in the hospital is a cultural phenomenon driven more by dogma and habits than it is by... Uh, uh, necessarily science, but um, in North America, you have about a two-day median uh, reduction in uh, length of stay. In Europe, it's uh, a little more than three days and two days in Asia. We all know how challenging it is to uh, demonstrate a reduction in length of stay through ERAS and all the efforts we do. Um, the fact that the treated group in areas where there may be more consistent uh, habits in terms of discharge, again, I think is quite significant. Here's the meat of the paper. EFS is significantly improved in the chemo tree group, nearly 20% benefit at two years, and uh, almost a year of extra uh, um, life without recurrence. And so that's an impactful finding. When we looked at subgroup analysis, um, again, interpreting these things with caution, generally uh, most subgroups derived some benefit, though statistically it's hard to tell if there is a... Um, uh, significant benefit in some of the subgroups. I think questions that will emerge are the PDL1 less than 1% patients and the stage 1B2 uh, patients. We may need more time to, to figure that one out and perhaps larger numbers. Um, this is really interesting. If you can tell your patient that they uh, had a PCR after resection, you can tell them that they're pretty close to being cured. Uh, there's a very significant difference here between the PCR and non-PCR patients. And for me, the most important slide, a 12% benefit in, um, in overall survival at two years. Remembering, and then, you know, the p-value is 0.79. Once you've chewed up all the alpha for the two initial uh, primary endpoints and with the hierarchical testing, the threshold was 0.33. So it's not statistically positive, but for me, this is clinically extremely positive. And it embeds the accepted approximately 5% benefit of having given chemo many of the adjuvant patients will not make it to chemo. So again, I think this is a very uh, powerful finding. This is an improved regimen here. I wish it could be approved in Canada a little quicker, uh, but for the time being, it's not, and we'll see what happens with the rest of the world. And so in terms of my conclusions, I think uh, patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer, this regimen of nivolumab and chemotherapy preoperatively prolongs the FS. To me, this is an important endpoint. It induces high rates of PCR, again, something I think is quite important. Um, so, uh, and this is all without having really increased uh, risks for our patients. Um, I think I've already said this stuff, and I'd like to hand over to the boss here, Dr. Altorki. Thank you, and it's, it's great to be here. 
It's great to see you all here, packed in together like that. <laughs> the, the last two years have be, really been banner years for uh, patients with lung cancer. Who would have thought that? We had the ADORA trial in September of 2020. We had uh, Empower 010 in October uh, uh, of, uh, yes, of 2021, and uh, the Checkmate trial and Pearl's trial. So it was, it was, it was uh, an amazing accomplishment, uh, as we know. Now, I'm here to talk to you about the adjuvant therapy trials. And we'll start with this case, a 55-year-old Asian American man with extensive smoking history, comes in with hemoptysis, has a right upper lobe mass, negative brain MRI, PET otherwise negative, had a right upper lobectomy with mediastinal node dissection done, R0, and uh, the PDL1 is 70%, and was not EGFR or, uh, or ALK uh, rearranged, uh, and had a KRAS mutation, pretty unusual for an Asian American man, but only one positive lymph node. And he got uh, cisplatinum pemetrexid four cycles at that final stage, stage 2B. So there are four randomized trials of adjuvant immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the ANVIL trial, the EMPOWER-010, which is adjuvant ATIZO, the NCI Canada trial of BR31 of adjuvant uh, Durelumab, and the PEARL trial, which is another global trial with adjuvant Pembrolizumab. Both uh, the ATIZO trial and the ANVIL trial will probably report late this year. The other two have already reported. So the first one to get out of the gate was Empower 010, and uh, that basically took patients who had completely resected stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer that had an R0 resection, and uh, who had, they were registered at that point, and then went on to receive four, up to four cycles of cisplatinum-based chemotherapy, and then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive one year of adjuvant atezo or best supportive care, which is essentially uh, observation. And uh, the, the primary endpoint, which was disease-free survival, was tested hierarchically in the following manner. So it was first tested in patients who have, okay, first tested in patients who had stage two to three A that were PDL1 positive. And if positive in that cohort was tested in patients with PDL in all the randomized stage two to three A patients, and if positive, it was tested in the all uh, in the IITT population, and if then positive, it was overall survival was tested in, uh, in in the entire population of patients. A key secondary endpoint was disease-free survival in patients expressing PDL1 in 50% or more of the tumor cells. The study was reported first in June of 2020 at, at the ASCO meeting, and this, are, this table basically shows that the baseline characteristics are fairly well balanced in terms of uh, histology. The more than 50% were non-squamous histology, uh, well balanced in terms of the, the uh, proportion of patients expressing PDL1 in their tumors. I want you to make a mental note of the stage distribution here. We will come to that when we discuss key, uh, keynote. So roughly about 11 per, uh, or 12% had stage 1B, 
41% or 42% had stage 3, and roughly about 45 or 47% had stage 2 disease. Now, you can say that these patients had the Cadillac treatment. What is the Cadillac treatment? They had a lobectomy. And for the most part, 77% had a lobectomy due, 80% had a mediastinal node dissection, and all of them had cisplatinum-based chemotherapy, the majority of whom had four cycles of the prescribed treatment. Only 15% had a pneumonectomy and less had a bilobectomy. Okay, so uh, there was one interim analysis for DFS, and that was done in the first interim analysis. There was a superior um, disease-free survival in the target population, which is stage 2 to 3A, expressing PDL1 in 1% or more of the tumor cells. The, um, uh, the median survival was not reached in the ATEZO arm and was 35 months in the best supportive care arm. The hazard ratio was 0.66, and the p-value was 0.004. As you can see here, there's almost a 12-point separation at three years in, uh, in DFS. Then it was tested in all the stage 2 to 3A population, and again, uh, there was a significant difference in both the, the median uh, survival as well as in uh, the uh, survival at two and three years, and the, D and the hazard ratio was 0.79 with a p-value of 0.02. Now, they went on to, to do uh, DFS in the, in the ITT population, and it, although it was numerically higher in the Atezo arm, it did not cross the statistical significance boundary. So this will have to wait until the final interim analysis, which I'm thinking maybe probably sometime uh, next year. This is the forest plot, and again, as Jonathan said, an exploratory analysis looking for the impact of various clinical and pathological variables on DFS. And as you can see, to the left means Atezo is better, to the right means best supportive care is better, and by and large, Atezo is better in, all, in, in almost all the key groups. And again, uh, what's important here is that one does not draw a lot of conclusions, it just gives you a bird's eye view of what to expect. The important point, this is the forest analysis, I'm sorry, the, the previous one was in the patients expressing PDL1 in more than 1% of the tumor cells. This is in all the stage 2 to 3A patients. So you can see one of the questions that was raised almost before uh, the presenter, Dr. Wakeley, left the podium is the impact of PDL1 expression on, uh, on outcome. And it was largely driven by those that have PDL1 expression 50% or more with a hazard ratio of 0.43. Think about that for a second. That is a 67% reduction in the hazard rate of, of death or recurrence disease. That's an amazing finding. I, I, you know, I still, every time I look at this, I'm very impressed. Uh, they're, they're, and the ones that had more than 1% also had a favorable hazard ratio. Those that had less than 1% did not get any benefit. Now, uh, approvals have generally been in the United States for anybody expressing PDL1 more than, well, not anyone, 2, two and 3A expressing PDL1 in 1% or more. I think in Germany, and if I'm not mistaken, and in Switzerland, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's approved only in the 50% cohort, with good reason, I would say. 
And this is the sort of graphically, a graphic representation of DFS across all levels of uh, PDL1 expression. And see, this is the more than 1%, which is statistically significant. Here, the, the hazard ratio approach, you know, is, is okay. It's 0.8, I think, but it does cross unity. But there is, uh, the curves are not exactly overlapping, and this is the effect in the PDL1. Almost a 20 point difference. In, in survival in that cohort. And then when you exclude those patients that have EGFR mutations or ALK alterations, the curves look a lot better, numerically better, but uh, uh, still uh, the hazard ratio crosses unity. So this, this is something we presented at uh, the World uh, Congress about a year ago, I think, uh, PDA, you know, the impact of treatment characteristics on DFS in those patients expressing PDL1 more than 1%, and basically across pathological stages, across node positive disease, uh, surgical treatment and a type of chemotherapy, everything seemed to favor ATIZO. The questions that we were asked and will probably be asked in the discussion is what about the pneumonectomy group and what about those guys that got cis-gem rather than any of the other combination therapy. And it's so important again to point out that not, these subgroups are not powered to answer that particular question. So uh, by and large, these are, this is hypothesis generating data. Now, what about circulating tumor DNA? Well, the investigators did a really good job at collecting uh, plasma for circulating tumor DNA, and it turns out that circulating tumor DNA was strongly prognostic. So if you look here, patients who had C uh, CTDNA negativity, clearance of CTDNA in the plasma, in that group, Atizu did significantly better than those that had best supportive care, and of those that had uh, uh, residual CTDNA in the plasma, Atizu was still better than those that got the best supportive care which uh, tells me two things. One is that TISO in, in overall is better than best supportive care, and two is CTDNA, of course, is a, is a strong prognostic indicator. But before we get on our high horse and start that CTDNA is just a, such an amazing thing, if you look at this, if you get chemotherapy and a TISO and clear your DNA, you still have a 40% chance of recurrence of disease beyond three years. So that's important, and I think there's a lot of work that still remains to be done. Well, what about the adverse events? So the great three, four adverse events were 20%. Question was asked was, okay, well, how do you recommend uh, uh, treatment with uh, something that has a 20% grade three, four adverse events? And the answer is easy. You know, the, you, 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 you balance that against the risk of recurrence and the cohort that you're treating. If you're treating somebody with stage 3A, maybe the balance favors a TISO. Is AE that led to discontinuation of the drug was 18%. Uh, so that's important in any immunotherapy. I mean, remember, we give those arbitrarily for one year, sometimes for more than one year, and nobody really knows how long you should give them for. So, you know, most patients would stop the drug, in my experience, after, not in this trial, but in our own personal data, less than one year. And I have two minutes. Okay, so let's jump over this. Okay, so the overall survival data uh, were uh, not, you know, still have, or have not matured and probably will mature later this year. And as I said, the FDA approved uh, the ATIZO in, in the population that I just described in October of 2021. So in March of uh, February, I think, of this year, 
for March of this year, uh, uh, Keynote uh, 091 was uh, presented at ESMO, and th this took patients, again, with completely resected stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer, and then randomized them to made a recommendation for chemotherapy, uh, um, strongly recommended in patients with stage 2 to 3A, and was, were randomized to adjuvant Pembro for one year or... Uh, can see from here, placebo. And there were two co-primary endpoints. One was uh, DFS in the overall population, and the second co-primary endpoint was DFS in, in patients expressing PD-L1 in more than 50% of their tumor cells. And that is going to prove very interesting in the data, as we can see. I wanted you to then reach into your memory bank and see the distribution of cases here. So. About 15% had stage 1B, but the proportion of patients in stage 3A was much lower uh, here than it, than it is in the Empower 010. So this was mainly weighted towards stage 2 disease. Uh, and 14% did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy. Probably most of these are going to be stage 1B. So for all intents and purposes, one can skip over that particular point. There was a significant difference in DFS in the overall population, no doubt about it. The hazard ratio was 0.76. The p-value was 0.001. So again, confirming the value of adjuvant immunotherapy in this setting. And here is the puzzlement. For those that expressed... PDL1 in 50% or more of the tumor cells that has such an astounding improvement in survival in Empower 010. This was essentially overlapping with a five year, with a two-year survival of 70 and 71%. I don't know what the explanation of that is. It's clearly not significant. Uh, this is just an exploratory uh, um, uh, forest plot of all the various groups, and by and large, most of these uh, uh, favor adjuvant Pembro. Now, there were some differences here. So grade 3 to 5 events were 34% here, uh, which is a little higher than after adjuvant Atizo, but those that led to discontinuation of the drug was about the same, 19% versus 18%. So in conclusion, the use of immunotherapy in the, in, in the perioperative management of resectable lung cancer is a major advance. Uh, this is the question that uh, will trouble all of us as we go forward, which is when to do adjuvant, when to do new adjuvant, and of course we all need uh, better biomarkers to try and figure this one out. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Altorki. I think that basically is a rapid overview of the available data for at least the phase three data that we have. And um, maybe we'll just go through a f back to our original case, uh, this 67-year-old lady with acceptable lung function for lung resection with the stage 3A uh, lesion. I'm going to ask you guys again, and it will be a number of polling questions, so, yeah, thanks. Uh, please uh, try and answer quickly so we can move on to the next and get to more discussion. So um, before we ask you guys, uh, what would you do, Dr. Altorki, for this patient? Try not to taint the, uh, the group too much. I was going to eat my cookie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to do. No, I agree with, uh, with the consensus. Give her neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy plus uh, chemo and uh, proceed on to surgery. I'm a little worried that she has bulky subcarinal nodal disease, though. Fair enough. And I think that's um, one of the big debates is what is bulky? What, how do we make that decision? Um, and that's a, a moving target. Okay, so this is actually what happened. Uh, we treated her with neoadjuvant chemo IO. 
Um, I'm pretty sure she received IO because she developed hypothyroidism on induction. This was a blinded trial, which is uh, one of the big challenges we had in the last few years is managing patients who might have had placebo, placebo or might have had treatment. Um, and on the, the below series is, is the, the post-induction um, uh, scan. So you can see that the primary lesion in the SUPSEG reduced in size. The GGO also contracted a little bit, and there's some response in the uh, subcarinal lymph node. So uh, the reason why I think it's important to think about this is that this is what we found. This is a lady, um, we kind of made, it, made up the case. She actually had less good lung function than what we showed you. She had pretty severe emphysema. And this is all the lung that you're taking out only for this tiny little lesion up at the apex uh, in the, in the soup seg. And when we looked microscopically, she had a path-complete response in that primary tumor. And um, interestingly, the middle lobe wedge had residual carcinoma. It looked like a sep when we did NGS compared it to the uh, original lesion. It was a different primary, but it didn't respond. And that level 7 was complete response. So there was, theoretically, an opportunity to de-escalate the operation in this patient. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Alparki? Yeah, that it's very hard to predict that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it could have easily gone the other way, and you would have had residual disease. In the, right. But, but, you know, like, again, you produced a spectacular result, so I'm not going to argue with success. Well, it wasn't me. It was the <laughs> medonc who gave the treatment, I guess. I just did the operation. Yeah. But, but we, do, we will face these situations increasingly, and, yeah. and these, I think, questions will emerge. I mean, uh, I, So this is a question from Dr. Abbas asking if uh, frozen section would help. And I... I'll tell you that in my practice, as I've started to believe in this more, I have tailored my practice enormously. And whereas I used to get annoyed about asking for frozen sections because it would slow me down, I ask for it a lot now. And um, it, I think it's quite a valuable adjunct. The pathologists do give us uh, a hard time because it's hard for them. And they, they see a lot of inflammatory cells, small blue cells. They don't know necessarily what to make of it. Um, but uh, I do think it's quite helpful. I would like to be a contrarian here. Good. So the, the, the data are that if you give chemoimmunotherapy and then do a lobectomy, you get the results that you got. Yeah. So, I, I'm, I, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, many of you know that I am a PI on the limited resection. <laughs> so, so I have nothing against limited resection, but, but we have to test that because yes. I think... Uh, although it may be success, and, and you know, with immunotherapy, it's really, really hard to tell what is residual cancer and what is not, and it may be hard for the radiologist, for the pathologist as well. Yeah, I think it's an important caveat. Well, I, I see your question. We'll just go to the second case, and then we'll take more questions. Um, so this is uh, your patient, Dr. Elton. Yes. So this is the Asian uh, patient that had a KRAS mutation, had a complete resection. So I think there's so much to talk about. I saw one hand go up, so maybe we can get... Um, please speak into the microphone just so that our virtual audience can, can hear you. So Nassib, uh, in the setting of multifocal uh, uh, disease, uh, like the first case, I mean, what do you think about the segmentectomy in, in the lower lobe and then the wedge uh, in the upper lobe as opposed to doing the whole lobe? I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I think that we make clinical judgments every day for each individual patient. And, you know, faced with a patient who has borderline pulmonary functions, maybe I'd consider it. But I think it's also important to understand or, or, or internalize what the results of the trial were. 
And, uh, you know, you, you, I have no problem with doing a segment and a wedge in individual cases as the clinical situation demands. Yeah, I think it's important to make a difference between the data we have and the practice we should adopt and how we need to get engaged as a surgical community into developing the science on, on this work. They're, they're kind of two different questions. But uh, none of these trials uh, prospectively ask surgeons to evaluate the patient at presentation, after uh, induction, and comparing all that to what was actually done. And, and that's super important data, right, because our judgment may change as, as time goes. Someone could bring the microphone over here. In the meantime, I'll take another one of the uh, virtual questions. Um, so one of the questions comes up about pseudoprogression. Does, uh, does that happen? Dr. El-Turkey, have you? I, I feel very strongly that it doesn't. And I think there is, uh, your data are pretty conclusive that it doesn't. Disease progression occurs at similar proportions both in the chemotherapy and the immunotherapy arm. We forget that those patients that we give cytotoxic therapy to progress during therapy. I mean, that's just the way the disease is, and to ascribe it to immunotherapy, to me, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. I, I think anecdotally, I, I might have seen it more in patients who had pure immunotherapy regimens, nivolumab, ipilimumab, or, or just uh, uh, an anti-PD-1. And even then, uh, I'm not totally convinced of, of the phenomenon. Obviously, you might see it on PET. If you do PET restaging, you may see more avidity than you saw before because these are heavily infiltrated lesions with uh, cells that eat glucose for, for a living. So, so that may occur. What are your thoughts on, on well, Before you ask me yeah. about my thoughts about this, I want to know what happened to the ipi nevo arm. So it's an excellent question, and uh, I'm, I haven't seen the data yet, yeah. um, but I do expect it to be out uh, at some point. There is a plan to, to bring that yeah. to, 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 okay. to be shared. And I think my expectation is that we'll see something um, of interest, but anecdotally, again, these were as easy as the chemoimmunotherapy patients were to manage preoperatively. I did encounter more issues, again, anecdotally with... Uh, immune-related adverse events that were problematic in the ipinevo uh, patients. Did it prevent surgery? Uh, not in my hands, but we had more delays. So we had more patients who had to go on steroid tapers, and then I didn't like to operate on patients who were on a you know, high-dose steroid, so I'd wait a little bit more. And I see Dr. Vader here, who is uh, an eminent uh, personality in the neoadjuvant space. Could we bring him uh, the mic, please? Thank you both for excellent uh, presentation. You know, the only study we have in a randomized fashion looking at the question neoadjuvant versus adjuvant uh, in chemotherapy showed no difference. So what do you expect now using uh, IO uh, as adjuvant or neoadjuvant? Which one do you personally favor, even in the lack of uh, enough data? Fair enough. I, I like to have Dr. Al-Turki answer these things first. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so that, that is actually an interesting question. I think for patients with stage 3A, clinical stage 3A, I think most people in the room would, be, would have a consensus that these guys need new adjuvant therapy. 
for patients with stage 1B and 2, I think if you dive into the supplement of the New England Journal, you will see that the survival is not much different for stage 1B and 2. Now, again, it's a small trial. Maybe the numbers were, power, were not powered for that. Uh, my, in my practice right now, for stage 1B and 2 that are otherwise, I feel I can get a good R0 resection, the high probability of an R0 resection, and that are PDL1 expressing, I think that it's perfectly okay to operate on them and give them adjuvant therapy. If I thought that they were PDL1 negative, uh, they're, you know, not so sure about the data with the new adjuvant, but I, I would be more inclined to give them new adjuvant combinations. Um, and if I thought that they were, un that I would be unlikely to get an R0 resection, I would give them new adjuvant. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what everybody else thinks, so what do you do, Walter? You know, the early stages is not yet uh, uh, proved that we do neoadjuvant treatment, uh, except for the stage 3A, as is mentioned. Um, uh, you know, the advantage of neoadjuvant treatment is that we get, a, we see a response in the specimen, and you have see, and we have seen some really nice responses. And if you have a complete pathologic response, you are maybe done. If, but if you have still residual disease, you might go on with further treatment. So I think the direction might go in this way. So I, this is why I favor neoadjuvant uh, in many situations, at least in the more higher tumor stage. Stage, uh, stages or tumor sizes. Well, it's uh, very helpful to have that because that would be my practice as well. I, I think uh, <laughs> I think what we have to remember is even in the stage one Bs and twos, the most common cause of death in these patients is, is metastatic d disease afterwards. And um, although the the EFS benefit in the stage twos is not dramatic, it's a two-year endpoint. The events may take longer to accumulate, and you've given. 85% of those patients, that extra 4 or 5% survival benefit by giving them chemo. Now, although none of my patients have complications, mm -hmm. I know that the data indicates that at least a third or more, a third to a half of patients don't make it to their indicated adjuvant therapy. But that's a, it's such a perfect question for a trial. It is. You're absolutely I mean, right. I, and, I, and, you know, I, I, you're, I, I'm also an advocate of new adjuvant therapy, but I think it's important that you know that it that we all know that it's not mandatory in those stages 100%. and 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 if you look at the dfs and the efs in the two trials they're essentially the same the separate the delta is the same that's fair yeah that's fair and but i i think again for the people in the room we're the surgeons historically we've been the barrier to these trials accruing and and these patients are in our hands so if we were to do a, an important trial which i think uh, dr al Torki is pointing out is a very important trial it, it involves us being participatory to the exercise. Uh, we have another question here from, uh, from the audience. There's one here, and then here, and then there. Okay. okay. I enjoyed the presentations. Thank you. Uh, seeing that immunotherapy is associated with maybe a 1% to 3% risk of pneumonitis, does that taint your enthusiasm to give radiation therapy, either pre-op or post-op? If you give immunotherapy 
uh, are you willing to give immunotherapy and radiation simultaneously? So I think, Dr. Taltoker, you have the most experience here of uh, combining immunotherapy and radiation. So, yeah, but so, we, we, so we, we published a trial combi combining immunotherapy with radiation, but eight gray times three, which is not a usual dose. It's a total of 24 gray, which is the biological equivalent of 43 gray, which is much less than what you would give uh, those people. So I think radiation uh, in the early stage disease has taken a big hit with the uh, adjuvant, I forget the name of the trial, what was it called? Lung art. L the lung art trial that showed no difference. So we're not giving that anymore. And I think very few of us are going to combine chemotherapy and radiation as an induction regimen with immunotherapy for exactly the reasons you identified. And I think the, the, the concern about the impact of interstitial pneumonitis or immune-related pneumonitis in the induction regimen or even in the adjuvant regimen are have proven to be not as big as we thought they would be, so that's good. In patients with stage 4 disease where you keep those guys on immunotherapy for an extended period of time, then it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I, I, for, for us, uh, even before these regimens came on, we've really reduced the amount of preoperative radiation that we use, not seeing much benefit. Um, but we, we, we may see something different as a sensitizer to immunotherapy uh, as, as time goes on. Um, we have, I think we have a question sure, there, yeah, and then please. a question in the back. Dr. Just Broderick. a bit more of a comment than a question. And, and Dr. Alturki, you, you sort of skived this issue a little bit when you try to compare, and I'm seeing a lot of people comparing outcomes in Empower 010 versus Checkmate 816. And as a community, we need to be really careful about these cross-trial comparisons because they're yeah. not the same patient populations. Right. Taking people who had a pathologic specimen that may have shown occult nodal disease and enrolled in Empower 010 versus someone who preoperatively we identified nodal disease or, or 1B disease and put on a neoadjuvant trial. So the deltas are, different, are the same, but we can't take outcomes from Empower 010 and say, well, let's just give them adjuvant. On that issue, no. how would you uh, counsel a patient who's had a PCR in terms of bringing that patient to tumor board and advocating for continued I.O.? I've heard people now that in, in the U.S. you have access to both regimens. You may, you may continue a TESO. We just spend more money. That's all. Uh, well, that's certainly not going to happen <laughs> in Canada, but I, I wonder what, how, you, how you approach those situations. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I have a very peculiar uh, <laughs> view on this. Uh, which is, uh, I think that the response to immunotherapy is immediate and very swift. And uh, in, in the trial that we did, if somebody had a PCR and they were not, uh, they were reluctant to get chemo uh, adjuvant, adjuvant uh, derva, um, that's fine. Right. But we didn't give it to them. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions. Yep, please at the back there. Yeah, so uh, back to the radiation question. So for 3A disease, is the checkmate regimen going to replace the chemo radiation uh, treatment prior to? And when is that going to be reflected in uh, NCE and uh, guidelines? Well, I'd encourage you all to attend uh, a session tomorrow. It's unclear yet whether it will be Dr. Stiles or Dr. Bott presenting due to some uh, COVID issues. Um, but it's uh, essentially a presentation of the AATS Early uh, Lung Cancer uh, Work Group. And uh, you'll see some of the consensus statements that uh, emanated from that work. 
In my practice, there's very, uh, it's hard to find scenarios where I think preoperative radiation is of any help. I think the exceptional circumstances of a patient with intractable pain, chest wall invasion, or something like that, where you might want to get um, so, you know, some multimodality therapy, in it, but even then, I, I would probably treat them with chemoimmunotherapy. And the, and, and, you know, and the PCR rate with chemo radiation is is 25 percent, 20 to 25 percent. So it's it's hard to argue, uh, you know, in, in its in its favor, because I think it brings a, a series of new challenges to the management of the patients, especially if you're going to give them adjuvant IO after that. Last question, because we're almost up at time here, Dr. Altorki, do you restage after neoadjuvant uh, no. treatment? No. no. I mean, I restage for systemic disease, but I don't restage for, I think the decision is made. The die is cast, as they say. I agree. I think it's important. Uh, the last thing I'll remind folks for Checkmate A16 is that these were patients who had to be sort of considered operable at presentation. So while the regimen does provide some hope that we may be able to downstage patients who present as unresectable, the practice really should reflect the trial, which is to administer the treatment to patients who present with operable disease and operable physiology um, so that we continue to have these good outcomes. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.